It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, September 17th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. The president's age is a big concern for Americans, but officials at the White House say, look at the record. Every time he beats the naysayers. I'm Kevin Cork. It's not just a border problem anymore. In fact, from coast to coast, for communities large and small, a migrant surge at the border means a surge in anxiety, cost, and questions about how best to uphold the rule of law and American values. We need these people to stop trying to come to the United States. We need their countries to have enough economic opportunity and political stability that they don't try and come here. But we also need to make sure that our law enforcement, our Customs and Border Patrol, everyone on the border has the resources they need. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Eighty is the new 40. That was the tongue-in-cheek answer from the White House press secretary this week on another question about President Biden's age. In 2019, he got the same criticism. In 2020, he got the same criticism. In 2022, he got the same criticism. And every time, he beats the naysayers. Corrine Jean-Pierre says she understands the concerns about the president's age. He's 80 and would be 86 at the end of a second term. I can't speak to every American out there and their concerns. What I can speak to is what this president has done, right? I can speak to his experience. I can speak to the wisdom that he has. I can speak to his record. And it's that record from bipartisan legislation to green energy agendas to international diplomacy that officials here say the president should be judged by. And some days, you know, you could argue that the president's schedule is robust. I mean, he was just on that trip overseas and working through more time zones than most people would ever do in a a two or three day time period. Mark Meredith is a Fox News correspondent who covers the Biden administration and the reelection campaign. But then there are days where the president doesn't have anything on his public schedule. There's still stuff happening. It's just not necessarily published or publicized. Uh, But I think there really is going to be this reckoning in the next few weeks, if not months, about the president's age. But there is another X factor in all this, because while the White House is, you know, they're going to say, look, he's the president. He's doing fine. He's got his full faculties. It's going to be more of the whispers from the Democratic Party uh, and whether or not there's going to be that last minute person who may jump in and try to challenge him for the nomination. But we haven't seen that. And there are filing deadlines, Jared. I mean, the Democrats have also changed their primary calendar for South Carolina to move it up front, meaning if there really is going to be a challenger within the Democratic Party, there's really only like, what, maybe a month left that somebody could jump in. Not to say it's impossible, but if it's really going to happen, it would have to happen sooner rather than later. That's why I don't think the White House is spending all this time worrying about the age concerns, um, because you know, they don't see a serious challenger. Well, and to that point, even those Democrats who I think have kind of been floated is that person who's going to be the late entry. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, is certainly one of those names. Um, As much as he has said, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. He also and other Democrats still are really supportive on the policy side, right? They like the legislative agenda of this president. They like Bidenomics. They like what he's doing on a foreign policy uh, side. So it doesn't leave a lot of room to kind of separate yourself, does it? 
Absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, he's definitely kept the Democratic Party pretty much in lockstep, except for maybe a few far left progressives. But I think Mm -hmm. the only thing that I could see changing this, Jared, is if for God forbid, there's some sort of health episode or if there's another really bad moment where he just, you know, forgets where he is or says something that really triggers alarm bells that I think could prompt like, okay, the Democrats really have to change it. But we haven't seen that yet. I mean, we I've seen a lot of clips of some odd moments, some weird stories, confusing facts and dates um, that I mean, there's no doubt about that. In fact, look just what happened uh, for the 9-11 stuff. The president mm-hmm. was in Alaska on Monday saying, oh, I went out to uh, the ground zero the day after. And the White House yeah. faced a barrage of questions of, of, wait, when did that happen? That's not true. He wasn't there. He didn't go until a week later. And while, of course, nobody's questioned that the president uh, was supportive of of the American people, New Yorkers after 9-11. It's stuff like that that people go, well, wait, why would he say that if that's not even close <laughs> to being accurate? Uh, those you do see, and to that point, I mean, you know, he, he comes back and, and you mentioned that around the world trip that the president took, um, which I think would be daunting for a lot of people. Um, you know, the, the White House has pointed to sort of that trip and said, listen, he is also uh, the only uh, person who has shown a capacity to kind of assume that that leader of the free world role, right? That it is a president that has kept NATO united and is creating new relationships in Asia. Um, and that that is kind of what they want Americans to, to judge this president by. Um, how challenging is that sell? How challenging is that to sell? I think that the White House really felt like that they were able to show, even with the Chinese and Russians not sending their leaders to G20 summit like this, that they felt like they got their message out, that the world Mm -hmm. is going to embrace some of these economic plans. You know, there's this new trade plan that they are setting up between India and Europe. They're going to have the, you know, the travel routes through the Middle East. They're going to say that this is a sign that they are able to effectively counter China's influence in the region. There's been so much focus about how China has been building up efforts in South America, Latin America, in the Middle East and Africa. And when you have a moment like this, where I think the White House is able to say, look at what we've been able to get the other U.S. allies on board with. That's quite something. The Ukraine factor, though, is is certainly not going away. And I thought it was really interesting because it was on the cusp of a lot of this summit that happened in India. You know, there was a lot of this focus on what are they going to say about Ukraine? It really felt like it was pushed to the back burner uh, mm-hmm. where they did not make it the sole focus at this G20 summit, as opposed to, you know, the last summit uh, mm-hmm. a year ago, yeah. where it felt like yeah, it was it- only Ukraine that was discussed. Yeah, that communique also there's been some criticism that that communique was kind of weaker on on the Ukraine language. That being said, there are countries in the G20 that, you know, don't have the same view as the United States on on Ukraine. Um, But to that point, I mean, that is a significant aspect of of the presidency is trying to kind of decide what role the United States is going to play in the world. And and even this week, sort of looking ahead to the, the G, uh, excuse me, to the U.N. General uh, Assembly, you know, we, we heard from Jake Sullivan. We've heard from the administration that says, listen, here's everybody who the president's going to meet with in New York. He's going to meet with, you know, the Israeli prime minister. He's going to meet with um, a bunch of Central uh, Asian uh, leaders. He's going to meet with uh, the president of Brazil. Again, I think to your point that, you know, all of these are places where China uh, has kind of, tried to find the foothold. Absolutely. But of course, the, the biggest issue right now is China's economy is far from stable. So you, you mm-hmm. have to wonder, maybe the U.S. senses this is the prime opportunity to to reset the clock, to reset the calendar. 
However, I mean, there's there's still an X factor here. I mean, House Republicans are not just going to be willing to dole out the foreign aid to whichever organization mm-hmm. or whichever country the White House wants. You've got the president having to focus now on reelection. Uh, so that and so that means focusing pretty much solely on domestic matters. Uh, yeah. the, the focus on how they're going to enact their foreign policy is really going to have to be put on the, the stakeholders outside of the White House, your, your secretary of state, your ambassadors. Um, I just don't necessarily think it's going to be where we see the president spend his time and energy going forward in 24. Yes, he's got the U.N. He's got the U.N. meetings. Um, but it just I just don't get the sense and maybe I'm wrong. God knows I could be that we're going to see him just doing trips all over the world next year. Instead, I think it's going to be going to Arizona going to Michigan, going, you know, really having to sell that his his agenda here at home as opposed to abroad. But again, it's going to have to be something that, that um, you know, I, I guess shows his vitality, <laughs> shows his his energy level. Is that kind of what you expect to see from from President Biden? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the difference was, of course, in 2020, I know, that, you know, everything's changed and it was a yeah. hell of a different time back in 2020. But the white his campaign was able to get their message out without him necessarily being on TV every day. Yeah. The X factor for because the of COVID, team, because of the distancing, because right. of the precautions that were in place. Yeah, yeah. but but they also I, I mean, I think there are things that they found that they could do uh, virtual fundraisers and, yeah. and stuff like that, that you don't necessarily that would would have, you know, 10 years ago would have been laughed out the room. And I think hmm. that some of those things will still translate. But, you know, for the for the Biden Harris campaign, the big X factor that they've got, they still don't know who they're running against. So, you know, I you know, I, I think it's funny every once in a while there'll be a piece that he's not campaigning, he's not doing anything. You know, you got to save your powder a little bit, you know, until the Republicans figure out who they're going to nominate. You know, I don't think he necessarily has to steal the headlines in the spotlight of the campaign schedule. Vice President Harris is certainly getting herself out there. I know she was in Virginia yesterday. She's been bouncing around. I know she's Mm -hmm. got to Florida a lot. So maybe she will be the one that um, tries to steal that travel mantle from the president. Uh, But he does these day trips. But we'll see really what that happens next year. I just don't see him being on the road out of the country as much next year. It's a good point, though, about, you know, he does not yet know who he is uh, running against, although we certainly know who the White House seems to believe he'll be running against. (laughs) Everything has been sort of framed in this MAGA uh, context. Even this week, the president talking about how Bidenomics is different than MAGAnomics and, and really trying to tie every Republican to uh, to the former president. Absolutely. I mean, you definitely get the sense that that's who they believe they're going to run against. But there's so many X factors here. And I mean, I think until we get past um, past Iowa, until we get past New Hampshire, I just don't truly think we're going to know. We probably won't. And, and we don't know where, where some of these legal issues are, are going to go as well. Um, and, and I guess that's uh, where to finish. Right. The White House has sort of downplayed um, their level of concern as it relates to this indictment for the president's son um, and what that relationship may look like. Um, I, you wonder if the president's going to talk about that in a, in a more personal or, or public fashion. I think you'll have to address it. And they'll, and they'll probably be uh, communications aides that are working on a better strategy uh, of how they're going to address it, because the questions aren't going to go away. So they can't just say, you know, no comment forever, no ever, because there's going to be developments, there's going to be drip by drip. But I don't think it's necessarily it's going to come from the White House podium. I think it's going to be this back and forth between the uh, White House counsel's office, uh, who's going to kind of push everything in the impeachment front, saying this is just political, this is just a, uh, a tit for tat. As for the Hunter's drama specifically, though, Jared, I think the president will do a 60 Minutes interview. He'll do an interview with um, 
uh, you know, a Rachel Maddow or something like that, and come up with a more uh, succinct go-to line about what's going on with the Hunter developments. And so I think that's where we're going to hear from him, but it's going to be in those rare, can't-avoid-it situations, but necessarily, not necessarily always with a friendly news outlet, but maybe one that uh, they feel like they're going to get at least a more fair question as opposed to, is your son a convict, you know, felon who belongs in jail? Well, maybe you'll get that question. We'll uh, we'll look out you for know that, what? Meredith. From I know the invitation. You're ready to go. I know you're, the, the seat's ready for you whenever you're uh, whenever the invitation goes out. Mark, appreciate the uh, chat. Have a good weekend, my friend. You too, buddy. Thank you. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A border blunder or a humanitarian lifeline? Regardless of how you view the surge in migration into the U.S., it's not just the Biden administration's immigration and border policies that are under increasing scrutiny. It's the enforcement of the law, or lack thereof, that has critics from both ends of the political spectrum demanding answers and solutions. Well, it is a complicated issue. It's also a heartbreaking issue. Marie Harf is a Fox News contributor and former State Department spokesperson. You look at these photos and videos, particularly of unaccompanied children who are being used as pawns, who are left to fend for themselves and try and cross the border. It is heartbreaking and it is complicated and it is a crisis. You know, I think the Biden team came into office trying to walk a very fine line in restoring some of the humanity to immigration These are people. These are humans. We also have legal responsibilities to allow refugees and migrants if they qualify. But to sort of, you know, get away from this separating children from their families, get away from some of the the Trump administration policies while confronting a real crisis. So, you know, I think they have talked at length about root causes. People make fun of that. But it is true that at the end of the day, this is not a problem law enforcement can fix on its own. We need these people to stop trying to come to the United States. We need their countries to have enough economic opportunity and political stability that they don't try and come here. But we also need to make sure that our law enforcement, our Customs and Border Patrol, everyone on the border has the resources they need, that they have the support from the government, that they from the federal government, that they have enough money, that they have enough funding, not just for their own Um, members, but also so we have enough beds, for example. We have enough places to house people while they're awaiting trial. We have enough places to incarcerate them if they're dangerous while they're awaiting trial. We have enough judges to adjudicate these cases. All of those things require federal resources, and Congress hasn't done its job, quite frankly, in getting all of the resources that they actually need on the border. This is a political football. Some of the things that you hear some people proposing, particularly a border wall, for example, doesn't always work. We need real solutions, but those are complicated solutions. They involve Congress, and Congress particularly has shown absolutely no ability to act on this. It's 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 bad. Um, I guess I would say, first off, it is a congressional issue. They have to come up with solutions and get them voted on and then get them to a president's desk if we're going to have something that's going to be, say, structurally sound moving forward. However, the pushback I get when I speak to congressional lawmakers is simply this. Kevin, we have laws, okay? We're simply not enforcing the laws. If we would start there as a base point, simply enforcing the laws that we have, 
we would be in a significantly stronger position. The perception, which often becomes reality, is that if you get to the border, they'll let you go in, and they're not going to say anything. They'll say, oh, yeah, come back for a court date in two to four years. And by that point, these people are not only ushered into the interior of the country, often by NGOs, often by governments themselves, uh, statewide uh, officials and different groups, they often, Marie, don't end up coming back. And so my point is, if the existing policy were to be graded, it's enforcement and what's on the books. What grade would you give the Biden administration? Well, look, that's a that's a political parlor game. I am not going to engage in giving grades to the administration because it's complicated, right? And it's not just enforcement. It's prevention. It's enforcement. It's a whole bunch of issues. The Biden administration is enforcing the law. The challenge is that the system is overrun, that it is it is at its breaking point. There are just too many. Often there are too many people a trying to claim asylum, which legally they have a right to do. And legally we have to adjudicate in some way. Too many people trying That's to if cla- they go to a point of entry, though. Right. They have to go to a port of entry and then you have to formally apply for well, asylum th- there are a variety of ways you can apply for asylum there are also ways you can claim refugee status and there are, we are also obligated to to adjudicate those as well and the bottom line is the system is overrun so what do you do when you have too many people showing up you don't have enough judges to adjudicate their cases you don't have any place to put them they make a claim that we have a responsibility to look into these are human beings you can't just Ignore your responsibilities under the law, and you have to put them somewhere, right? So now we've, as you know, we've, well, but, 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 we've seen them on. coming hold to New York. We've seen them okay. being shipped to Washington. You know, hold they're on. trying to get them out of the border communities, but that's caused a whole other set of problems. <laughs> and I want to touch on that, but you said we have to put them somewhere. Is that actually true? Because as I've read the the law on this, and I know you have as well, and especially as someone who's a policymaker who's worked at state, so I know you get this at a granular level, we have an obligation to adjudicate their claims, yes. However, we don't have an obligation to house and clothe and feed and keep in perpetuity, often in for years, uh, by the tens of thousands, or in this case, by the millions people who make a claim. So then my question is, this isn't even a legal responsibility. What do you what do you do with human beings who show up? Well, that's just it. And that's what do that's you do? Exa- right. I mean, this, this these are people. Uh-huh. These are many of them are children, first of all. So we, we need to be very clear that you can't just turn away an unaccompanied child, throw them back into Mexico and tell them to fend for themselves. I don't think as a country, even if that's not a legal obligation, mm-hmm. I don't think that's something that we should do. And so the question is, what are our actual legal responsibilities? We can't even meet many of those now because of we need more resources in the system because there are so many. I agree with you on the children. I, I agree completely with that. And I think all Americans would agree with that. But I can also tell you, and I know this is something that you've seen firsthand. I've been down to the border. I've been down to the wall. I've actually been to Mexico. And I've seen by the tens of thousands, young men, able-bodied, looking for work. I am a human being. I think all human beings deserve their dignity and an opportunity. 
But I think it's incumbent upon the governments of the respective governments where these people come from to work with the United States so that this is not simply a, hey, listen, we'll give you a few bucks. We'll let you get to the border. And once you get to the states, you can do whatever you want to do. Just be sure to repatriate some of those dollars that you make in construction and other industries. Does that make sense at all? I mean, it, sure. It's it's an argument that I hear a lot. And I think at some level it makes sense. You will also be told from many businesses in many parts of you know, border states that as a whole, they rely on migrant labor for a whole host of things that Americans aren't willing to do, that they keep the economies running in many of these places. So the economic question is also a piece of this, right? You have many places where without migrant labor, without people seeking a better life in the United States, whole industries or whole parts of of border communities would be much less well-off economically. We also have to remember that the border, you know, there's an economy of the border that happens on both sides of the border. Every day you have going back and forth um, workers, business people, you know, ranchers, folks, Mm -hmm. you know, that in a whole host of industries, they benefit by being on the border from the economy on both sides of the border. So it's not as simple as, quote, shut down the border that would economically impact negatively huge parts of border communities. And you hear from people there all the time on that exact issue. So again, it's complicated. (laughs) No, I agree completely. It's definitely complicated, but the pushback on that would be, listen, if employers along the border region and in other parts of the economy that rely heavily on, and I'm using the expression migrant populations to fill those ranks, whether it be hotels and cleaning service and agriculture, what have you, Uh, The pushback is the obvious one, which is when people say Americans won't do their jobs, Americans will do a job. You just have to pay living wage. You can't pay Americans perhaps what you would get away with paying someone who is completely desperate. There's almost an exploitation, you could argue, by relying upon people to come here and work for basically cheap, cheap, cheap wages, slave labor, uh, is how it's been described by some. And make the argument then as a corporation, well, you know, we can't do it if we don't have this labor. And I would push back and say, yes, you can if you're willing to pay a living wage mm-hmm. and not exploit the people who are most desperate. But let me ask you. But, but wait, you on really... that point, though, I mean, this is yeah. a, this is part of the look, our, our labor market is very strong. Unemployment is. is very low. It's hard to get American workers to do a whole host of jobs that aren't as high paying. Right. So this is this is and I would love for some of these conservatives and Republicans who are so anti-immigrant to make the case for a living wage. I mean, that would be a political uh, marriage that I did not predict. So, look, I think as a liberal, we should be pay people living wages. I think that there's a whole I think there should be a, a higher minimum wage. But there's no political appetite that among the people that argue for tougher border control. Just not. No, no, I don't disagree with that. But I think the corporations that make this argument that, well, we can't hire people, uh, that's bunk. If you're paying people, I got news for you. People are more mobile than ever. They will leave a job in a New York second if the wages are better across the street. So I always am a little bit uh, jaundiced when I hear this expression. Well, you know, uh, they take the jobs Americans won't take. And by the way, as you know, and you know me personally, uh, I grew up in the hood. I grew mm-hmm. up in some tough economic areas. I lived in the projects three different times growing up. I can tell you right now, even where I live, there are lots of able-bodied men that would love a good job that in many cases either can't or won't. You're right. I want to be fair. Won't take a job that is going to pay them a wage that is preposterous, and yet other groups will come here. You're right. And they'll be, mm-hmm. they're willing to be... Um, They're being exploited, I believe, 
uh, maybe not because of choice, but because they mm-hmm. simply have no better alternative, which is sad all around. I wanted to touch on something you really hit uh, that I, I'm interested in. New York City is having a real tough time, Marie, with, with the immigration circumstance. Right now we're talking about people being bussed and flown uh, there by the thousands. And again, by comparison to a border community or even a state like Arizona or California or Texas where they've already been coming uh, by the tens of thousands for many, 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 many years, now these larger, uh, for lack of a better description, blue state cities are getting a bit of that taste. They said they were sanctuary cities, and now they're living with the consequence. And I think you nailed it when you said it's a lot more complicated than maybe a political talking point. Yeah, you can see the politics of these issues. You can see the politics of these issues really being uh, upended in New York. New York is a great example of this. You have a a Democratic mayor um, in the city of New York who's actually been kind of a thorn in the Biden administration's side, pushing for more resources, pushing for more help in dealing with this problem. He's at odds with the mayor or with, excuse me, with the governor of the state of New York. This is upended politics in in some interesting ways. You also see protests in New York. You know, New York is a very liberal city in many ways, but but as this strains the system, you see protests where, you know, I would have been surprised to see these a few years ago. I mean, the bottom line is this is unsustainable, right? And you see that communities like New York or, you know, Cape Cod aren't set up to deal with migrants at all in the way the border communities, unfortunately, have had to become. They're even stretched to their limit. You can imagine how how folks in New York are stretched to their limit as well. So it, it is unsustainable, it is. It is just unsustainable. And if I had in my little hand, you know, five things we could do to fix this, I think any politician would. The challenge is we are enforcing the laws. We still have people breaking them. We have no way to adjudicate all of these different cases in a timely manner. And we are left with the situation we're in today. And and the politics of this are are interesting and changing. I think Democrats understand this is a a challenge, sort of morally, legally, and politically. I couldn't have said it better there, especially when you consider, as I know you know better than most, there are whole communities, Marie, that are none too happy (laughs) with this idea. I have family from Canada. Uh, They are vexed by this notion that people apparently can come to the U.S. and be here and and live and work and just everything's all good, you know, whether you show up or don't show up for your court hearing. They've been working for 10 years, seven years, trying to become American citizens. I have friends from China, the same thing. They've already resigned themselves to the idea that it will probably never happen. Talk to me, if you would, about this idea of creating a new system, something different. If you were to say one thing, you talked about a magic wand. Mm -hmm. If there was one thing you'd love to see maybe leadership at the White House or more broadly, congressional leaders do, what would that be? It's a great question. I think being able to adjudicate cases um, faster, more quickly, because if we could more efficiently determine who should be able to legally immigrate to this country and who should not, if we were able to do that quickly, then we would get... because. Immigrants who come here legally and enrich our country in so many ways, economically, you know, culturally, so many, so many ways. Right. If we were able to determine that and be able to deport or reject the cases from people who were try- who, who, who we determined could not come here to this country, mm-hmm. then I think 
and, and that that that's not just one thing, but if that's one thing I could do, that includes a lot more resources, particularly for these courts and the system to adjudicate these cases. I think taking the backlog away, right? Because the backlog is where you get buses of people being bused to New York because there's nowhere to put them on the border, right? It's where you get these cases where people are living in these tents, um, unsanitary, crowded for months at a time. That if I could do one thing, I think that would be that would be the thing. Um, but that one thing has a bunch of pieces to it, right? Which is why it's so complicated. But doing this more quickly, right? Adjudicating these cases more quickly um, would be a really, I think, a game changer here. The awesome Marie Harf joining us. This is uh, such a great conversation. And you're right. I think it's wide ranging. And I think there are multiple layers to sort of wade through. Before we let you go, I wanted to get your impression of what you think about this idea of the border states themselves sending immigrants <laughs> to places like New York, sending them to places like Chicago, where there's already a large uh, Hispanic diaspora, sending them to Washington, D.C., is this effective? Is this fair? Is it the sort of policy that not only brings it to the fore, but also relieves maybe the pressure on some areas and spreads it around so people all over the country have to really work together versus putting all the pressure and all the burden on places like Texas, California, and Arizona? Yeah. Look, it's a political stunt, right? These busloads of people are not numerous enough to actually take the burden off of the border states. They are trying to convince uh, blue states, Massachusetts, New York, Washington. Uh, they're trying to pull a political stunt here and say, how would you like it if all these migrants were in your area where you and look, these places do not have the infrastructure to deal with these migrants. They said they were sanctuaries. They but, you know, they they do not have the infrastructure to deal with this level of migrants. And well, what did they mean pe- by that? People then? are scrambling now. Right. People are scrambling because, look, I think during the Trump years, there was a real sense that immigrants of any kind were being targeted, you know, really aggressively in ways that felt um, like not in line with our American values. And I, you know, I certainly feel that way. I think a lot of Democrats said, like, we don't want people who try to come to this country in search of a better life to feel like they're being hunted by their by their potential new government. Right. So I think this, these were political stunts. I think they're pretty effective political stunts because it's changed the conversation in many of these places, including New York. So I think they've been pretty effective. I don't like um, uh, immigrants being used as pawns. And some of them didn't even know where they were going when they got on these buses. There's actually legal cases right now about whether or not these were legal to ship these people out of state. Um, so I don't like that. I don't like people at a vulnerable place in their life being taken advantage of by politicians. I don't like that. I think it's kind of gross. Um, but it's a political tactic, and you could argue that it's had some success in changing the conversation, and I think that was their goal. Indeed, it did change the conversation. It definitely uh, got the attention of many leaders in some of these larger cities, most notably Eric Adams. Uh, Marie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate it. Of course. Happy to be with you. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Be sure to join us all next week as we keep an eye on Wall Street as the Fed announces its decision on interest rates on Wednesday and what a potential rise could mean to consumer confidence and your bottom line. In the meantime, we thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Cork from Washington.
stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.